you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 30th. Today, how the stimulus package is benefiting corporations and what shelter in place means for people who are homeless. Well, thank you all very much. It's a very important day. I'll sign the single biggest economic relief package in American history, and I must say, or any other package, by the way. So the stimulus package that Congress has passed it's huge. It's $2 trillion. And this will deliver urgently needed relief to our nation's families, workers, and businesses. A lot of it is going to individual Americans, and a lot of it is going to potentially to small businesses. But a lot of it is going to corporations. I've never signed anything with a T on it. I don't know if I can handle this one, Mitch. <laughs> How much money is corporate America getting from this bill? So we're looking at $500 billion is going to go to companies. $450 billion in money that large corporations can apply for. $50 billion in assistance for airlines. 25 in grants, 25 in loans for the airlines. And $17 billion for firms deemed, quote unquote, critical to national security. But you have to protect companies like Boeing. They had a real bad year. That we've learned through our reporting is largely intended for Boeing, the aerospace company. So really, when you're looking at this all together, it's north of $500 billion for large firms, a huge bailout that could really ripple through the country. We can't chicken out at this point. (laughs) I don't think so, huh? My name is Jeff Stein. I'm the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. So when we talk about the money that these different companies and different industries are going to be receiving, like, are these just, is it just money that they're getting that they can have forever? Is it loans? Is it grants? What what kinds of money is it? So the vast majority of this aid will be in the form of loans and loan guarantees to these companies. And Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has been very defensive that this is not a bailout. So clearly they're, they're very defensive about that. And I think that's you know, a reflection of how much anger there was in 2008 over the bailouts um, that went to the banks. But other people have raised the point that even if this is not direct cash subsidies from taxpayers, and I will note there are $25 billion being allocated in direct cash subsidies to the airlines, Um, even though they are loans that may be repaid back at some point, it is really worth noting that this is still a form of emergency and special federal assistance that corporate America may be eligible to get that a lot of everyday working class people cannot. And what is the rationale from members of Congress and from the administration about why it's important to give all of this money or at least lend all of this money to these corporations rather than giving more of it to people who are unemployed or to 
Americans who can't pay their rent right now. The generous interpretation and the one that the administration will will tell you when you ask them is that these companies are suffering right now through no fault of their own. And more to the point, I think, if they are forced to go under, thousands of Americans will lose their jobs. They'll lose the access that they have to their health care. Like they could use a hand. Tough time. We can't, right, we can't lose those companies. If we lose those companies, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs. These companies were hit out of the blue and their workers will suffer if they're allowed to go under. And America will suffer if something like the airlines, that's a critical industry, whether you like them getting taxpayer subsidies or not, if they go bankrupt and go out of business, that could have long lasting ramifications, not just for them, but for other sectors of the economy. The faster we go back, the better it's going to be. We have a- but what if we just gave this money directly to people? Sort of for fun, I the other day went and I looked at the overall cost of this package. And if you took that money and divided it up among every person in America, every single person could get $6,000. For a family of four, that would be $24,000 at once. And the bipartisan stimulus package, that offers $3,400 per a family of four. So if we had just taken the exact same money and divided it up evenly among everyone in the country, rich and poor, a family of four could get $24,000. And under the current law that's going to be passed, that number is much closer to 3400 So a huge disparity and raises the question of, would this money be better allocated, not shoring up these large firms, but just giving to everyone in the country? So for the money that is being allocated to these companies, how is it going to be distributed? Like, does every airline automatically get money? Does every large corporation that's being affected automatically get money? Or is there a process for vetting and deciding who gets what and that some people might get left out? That question really falls to an extraordinary degree to the Treasury Department, which is headed by Mnuchin, who had a huge role in writing this bill. This bill that that he wrote gives him and his department a tremendous amount of authority and power. They have, I think it's about 10, 15 days, something like that, to write and disseminate rules, criteria for which these firms can apply. There will be some metric by which they have to show that they've been severely impacted, not by poor business practices, but by the coronavirus downturn. They'll need to show that this money will allow them to survive and how the money will allow them to survive. There are some limitations on the money. Congressional Democrats demanded much firmer, stricter limitations than what the Senate ended up actually putting in in the law. They are not allowed to raise compensation for any executives who earned more than $425,000 for the duration of the of the loan. They are also not allowed to issue stock buybacks, a provision that this, this prohibition on um, issuing buybacks that primarily benefit wealthy investors. So that, you know, there, there are some things that the companies will have to give up if they're to get this money. Because those were some of the features that we'd seen during the bailouts after the 2008 downturn that people continue to be really angry about, that that you're using taxpayer money to basically reward executives of these companies or investors. And, and that is where a ton of criticism has really centered, not just on the idea that taxpayers would help large distressed companies, but that a lot of these same firms that are likely to get this money have spent the last few years not putting away extremely profitable um, returns to a rainy day fund or giving them out to their workers, but in a number of cases, 
issuing stock buybacks that go to wealthy investors that have been tremendous for Wall Street. And so a number of Democrats, uh, tax experts and others have raised this, this frustration. Democrats, you know, Senate Democratic leadership is saying that they won, you know, several meaningful concessions that make this provision unlike that of 2008, that, that the checks now are stronger. And there was one provision that Democrats were quite excited to get in, which was a limitation on these firms benefiting the president, the vice president, members of Congress, and cabinet members. That provision, if you're reading between the lines a little bit, emerged because there were concerns that Trump's own private businesses would benefit from these federal loans, these taxpayer loans. That theoretically, Trump hotels could say, look, people aren't traveling anymore. They aren't staying in hotels. We, too, qualify to get some federal aid to get us through these hard times, and that would be money that would benefit President Trump. Correct. But, you know, Congress is prohibited the Trump family from benefiting from this. And a lot of people got a kick out of the fact that the law also specifies there's a whole provision aimed at sons-in-law. I wonder who that could be about. And then when you look more largely at, at the companies who are likely to benefit from this, is there any way of ensuring that the money that they're receiving is also going to be helping their employees? Because there are a lot of companies that have already done layoffs or are requiring people to work without sick leave. And I wonder if there is going to be a guarantee that the benefits that these companies see from being able to limit their losses for the coming months are actually benefits that are going to help the people who work for them or have worked for them. Yeah, there, there's one other provision I neglected to mention that um, requires the companies to try to prevent them from having any layoffs greater than 10% of their workforce by September. A lot of people have pointed out that that's a really short period of time and that they are free to lay off as many people as they want after that period exposes while still getting a lot of money. But it's a very difficult problem that Congress faced, even if you think they're operating under the best of intentions. I think that one industry that is benefiting from this that people have seen as a particular head-scratcher is the fact that the aerospace engineering industry is getting a hefty sum of money, and specifically Boeing. What is the rationale for that? What are the concerns about that? And why is Boeing getting all this money? Boeing, if you listen to the president speak, is one of the most important companies for the country. They provide planes, but they also provide a lot of uh, manufacturing equipment that the military uses. And so they have become singled out as as a company that cannot go under. That's the argument you you hear um, right now being made, I think, both by Boeing, which publicly asked for federal subsidies, um, and the president himself, who has, we've been told, grown frustrated with Boeing over the 737 MAX safety issues that resulted in, in deaths from plane crashes, but is still unwilling to see it go under. But are they being particularly affected by the coronavirus outbreak? They do manufacture planes, right? And if with global travel grinding to a halt, the airlines are cutting their production, right? So that has a direct impact on companies like Boeing. Um, they were hurting, sure, before this all happened, but it's certainly um, the coronavirus accelerated their financial woes. I think that when you look back to the bailouts that happened in response to the 2008 recession. One of the big fears that people had was that this would encourage companies to continue with bad or, or risky practices, that 
because there was now this precedent for America swooping in and handing over taxpayer money to get these companies out of hot water, that they hadn't really had an opportunity to learn their lesson or that they wouldn't be encouraged to be more cautious in the future. And I'm wondering if you can look at this money and this package and think the same thing, that you have a lot of companies that were making a lot of money over the past few years that didn't set up an adequate rainy day fund for anything comparable to what's happening now, and that it sends a bad message if we're just sort of handing over all this money. Yeah. And and the defenders of this policy will say, you know, the banks were largely responsible for creating the 2008 crisis. They gave irresponsible loans that then rippled through the economy when they couldn't be paid. And so that's the defense that this is a different kind of crisis, that this is a crisis for which these companies are suffering because of a cataclysmic pandemic that nobody could have foreseen. That's their argument. But I think lawmakers need to be careful and remember that 2008 bank bailouts helped set off the populist revolt we've seen in both parties, the election of Donald Trump, the rise of Bernie Sanders, and the idea that the vast economic pain that's being inflicted um, across the country could be spared for some at the top, for some of the most powerful, large corporations with you know lobbyists who can call lawmakers and still leave people with $1,200 checks that may or may not be enough to survive the, the coming few months. That is something that could be a fundamental dynamic to watch going forward. Jeff Stein is a White House economics reporter for The Post. When I was in San Antonio, I followed around an outreach worker named Monica Garcia, who was spending the week finding homeless people in encampments and under bridges and in parking lots and breaking the news of the virus to them. She talked to a woman who was living in an encampment under an overpass, and nobody in this encampment had heard of coronavirus yet. And so she asked the woman if she knew what was going on in the city and in the country. And the woman said, you mean with the violence? And she had to say, no, there's something a little more serious. It's this virus and it preys upon people who are sick and people who are older and people who are homeless. And that's you. How do you feel about me telling you that? It worries you? And the woman really started panicking and she started crying. And you could see that it was like things were so hard for her and now there was this extra thing and she just couldn't handle it. It brings some anxiety and so we can see. So, so basically what it is, I, I'm not telling you to instill any fear in you, but I'm telling you so that you know and you're educated enough in what's happening so that you can make decisions for yourself as far as you're living the way you're living here. Victoria, you're a human being. You don't deserve to be living like this. You know that, right? My name's Hannah Dreyer, and I'm a national enterprise reporter at The Post. Mm 
It's really fraught for people who are homeless right now because all the public health officials are trying to get homeless people into shelters. And the idea there is that if somebody starts to develop COVID-19 symptoms, nobody will know if that person is just all alone. But if that person is in a shelter, you can sort of monitor them and help them and get them the care that they need. But isn't that the complete opposite from what the rest of us are supposed to be doing right now? That if you put people into shelters, they're in a mass of people, they're not socially distancing, they're probably more likely to pick up the coronavirus from somebody else who they're in close proximity to? Yeah, so it's not a simple situation at all. The decision has basically been made by public health officials that homeless people should be in shelters if possible to protect the community and to protect other homeless people. But from the perspective of one person, it's pretty scary to think of going into a shelter because homeless people are often sort of naturally self-quarantining. If you're under a bridge or if you're in a tent in the woods, you know, you're by yourself and you're less exposed. And then when you go into a shelter, people are sleeping six six inches apart in some of these shelters. People are in rooms with 100 or 200 people all eating dinner together. So there's a lot of risk for exposure there. Homeless people are much more susceptible to respiratory infections, which is the main way that coronavirus is killing people right now. Some estimates are that they're five times as likely as the general population to be hospitalized with a respiratory infection. Homeless people are also often sick, and many homeless people are older. The average age where I was was about 55 And many homeless people have mental illness. In San Antonio, the outreach workers said they think about 100% of people have some form of mental illness, and then a third have serious mental illness like schizophrenia. And so it's hard for homeless people to be monitoring the situation and to be taking the steps to keep their hands clean, keep their distance from people. All of that is almost impossible. Earlier this month, Hannah spent a few days in San Antonio. She was following an outreach worker who works with Haven for Hope, one of the largest homeless shelters in America. And this woman, Monica Garcia, every day leaves her four-year-old daughter, who is prone to respiratory infections, with her 72-year-old mother, who has severe asthma, and going out every day and walking into encampments and finding homeless people who are living by railroad tracks or in parking lots. And she goes up and she gets really close to them. And at the beginning of the day, she was trying to get everybody into shelters because that's what outreach workers normally do with the homeless. The idea is if you get them into a shelter, they can get all sorts of services. And so she was trying to convince people that they should come back with her. Hi, Monica. Hi, Hannah. Hi. We're here just to see if, you know, how we can help you and what services we can offer you because... But then... All this news started breaking about how communicable this virus is. White House guidance came out about midway through the day that people should avoid groups of more than 10. And I really saw her approach change. So toward the end of the day, she was just trying to inform people so that they could make their own decisions about whether they wanted to stay where they were or come into the shelter. And what kinds of decisions were people making in terms of whether or not they felt it was safe for them to actually go to a shelter? I mean, what I saw was just more than a dozen people who had no good option. So she talked to some people who were older in their 60s and their 70s, and they really wanted to get off the street, but they were too scared to go to the shelter. They thought if they went into the shelter, they would get sick. 
they might get their stuff robbed. There were a lot of reasons they didn't want to go in. And so they asked her for help just trying to find some kind of temporary housing. Have you heard of coronavirus? Hell yeah, I even tried to get a test at my doctor's and weren't even test here. Why were you worried? There was this 74-year-old man who was living in an abandoned car wash. And he couldn't get up and down. His knees were shot. So he was just living in this armchair. And he told... Monica that he was really scared that the coronavirus was going to find him because he takes 18 pills a day. He said, I have no immune system. I have one foot on the banana peel. Third stage kidney disease. And I have now they think leukemia. I'm so sorry. And are you worried that coronavirus may interact with those things? Honey, I have no immune system left. Yeah. And he was just terrified that this virus was going to kill him. But he didn't want to come to the homeless shelter because there were too many people there. And so Monica said that she would come back and she would try to get him into senior housing. But that's a process that can take weeks or months. And I was just so struck by his fear and how hard it's going to be to try to protect him. I mean, he is the kind of person who really might end up dying in this epidemic. I went to the store and I was punching the buttons on the ATM machine to see how much money I had. And I thought, yes, that's contamination. Yeah. But how are you going to isolate yourself? Even if you have a good immune system. Totally. You know? And then some people who she told were just really overwhelmed in the moment. And what they most wanted to do was wash their hands. So she helped them use wipes to sterilize their hands. And she gave people a little bit of hand sanitizer and sent them back to where they had been living. But there's just not a good option for most people who are living on the streets, at least in places like San Antonio. Can I ask you, why did you start crying when she told you about the virus? Because there's a bunch of us, a bunch of us that are not as care, you know, take care of things. But some of us use a lot of hand sanitizer, always washing our hands. Yeah. And I see, like, a lot of them that don't. You're worried for them. Yeah. And are there any numbers on how many homeless people have so far tested positive for COVID-19? So at this point, dozens of homeless people in at least six states have tested positive. One homeless person in California has died after testing positive. And I saw that a homeless person in Texas tested positive and then left. So a person tested positive and then just returned to the street and they lost track of him. And are local governments or even the federal government doing anything to help homeless people in particular during the outbreak? Well, what the people working on the local level say is that they really need federal help. But so far, homeless people have been left out of the federal aid packages. And so cities are doing what they can. Some cities are able to open extra shelters, but most aren't. So in San Antonio, hundreds of people are now sleeping six inches apart, and there's really no other place to shelter them. And how are care workers taking care of themselves right now? It's really hard. It's almost like there's no safe way to do this work. Monica is very scared that she could herself become a vector for the disease for these homeless people, some of whom are living right now in pretty good isolation. So 
She has a whole routine that she does whenever she encounters a new person. She goes back to her truck and she wipes all of her fingers with an antibacterial wipe. And then she rubs hand sanitizer over her hands. And then she sprays her shoes with Lysol spray. And she's doing everything she can to be really conscientious. But she also thinks that it's important to get close to people. She says that just physical proximity to homeless people is part of the work she does. It's a way to give people back a little bit of their dignity. And I saw over and over again, the people she was working with would extend their hands for a handshake. And in that moment, it just feels like there is no way to refuse their handshake. And so she is getting close to people, she's touching people, and then she's doing everything she can to disinfect and wash her hands afterwards. But the truth is the homeless shelter has backordered hand sanitizer, wipes, gloves, everything. So they're going to run out and then the work will become even more dangerous. What Monica told me is she's really just trying to postpone getting sick for as long as she can so that she can help as many people as possible. One of the things that I feel like we're seeing during this outbreak is that so many of the vulnerabilities of our existing systems, that they're really being tested and and in many cases they're really failing. And it feels like this is one of those cases where there's already a homeless crisis in the U.S. And then you have a situation like this that comes along and it becomes clear that there really are no solutions or that there is no reliable way to make sure that we can keep homeless people safe. Right. So why are there more than half a million people living on the street in this country in the first place? You're dealing with failures of the mental health system, failures of the social safety net. And for frontline workers like Monica right now, it feels like you can't solve all of those huge systemic problems that put all these people on the street in the first place. For her, it's like all you can do is give people information and offer them a chance to come into a homeless shelter, which is not really a safe place right now. Hannah Dreyer is a national enterprise reporter for The Post. Post reports. Thanks for listening. We've received some really incredible notes from listeners over the past few days about how much they valued our coronavirus coverage. We're so glad to know that people are listening and learning, and we want more people to hear it. If there's someone in your life who you think would benefit from listening to the news about the outbreak from around the country and around the world, send them to our website. They can listen to our recent episodes and find a link to subscribe. That's at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Ah, 
spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.